Hello and welcome to this week's episode of Macabre for Mortals. This week I'm finishing off the series of domestic violence cases and this week's episode particularly resonates with me as I believe it could have been possibly me in many different situations and I believe if I didn't have the support that I have around me from a select few people I would possibly have been a victim or had a similar outcome to this case. When I look back at the past eight years, I had been subjected to various forms of domestic violence for a long period of time before I really realized that I was actually being subjected to it. It was when I was eventually physically assaulted, I went straight to the police and I was basically given the advice that I could go ahead and get a restraining order, but it was really a he said, she said situation and that I might not get what I wanted from the court. So is it really worth it? This was really disheartening to hear. I was persuaded by my support at the time that I should go to the doctor the next day as my arm bruised up. And so I would have something on a medical record for the future. I did go. But if I'm honest, if I didn't have that support, I probably wouldn't have done. And I can see with the treatments of myself by the police and authorities, why people don't want to go and approach them. I have always trusted the police. My father was a police officer and I have a background in forensics and forensic psychology, but I felt so let down. Looking back at my situation, I can see if someone potentially not as strong as myself, or if they do not have any support at all, they will get missed and then it could end in the worst way for them. This is something that I'm very passionate about. And I don't necessarily think that the police are in the wrong. I can see where they are trying to air the side of caution. But at the same time, you have to take people's situations seriously. So without further ado, this week I'm covering the Australian case of Luke and Rosie Batty. Rosie was born in England and raised on a farm in Laneham, which is situated in the county of Nottinghamshire. She was raised by her father along with her three brothers, as when she was six, her mother died. Rosie has always been open about losing her mother so young in life. She said that it had a long-term impact on her and her siblings by saying, I have not really formed permanent relationships with anyone. I have never been married and neither have my two older brothers. I think it really traumatizes you from having key relationships because of the fear that they are going to leave you. 
After leaving high school, Rosie completed a secretarial course and worked as a bank clerk, and then moved to Australia in 1986 to become an au pair. She finally settled in Australia on a partner visa in 1988. Rosie met Greg in 1992 when they worked together at a recruitment company and they had a romantic relationship that lasted two years. During these years together, Rosie says that she saw signs of sexual violence from Greg while they were together. This included an attempted rape of one of Rosie's friends. And after this attempt, this is when Rosie ended the relationship. Almost eight years after their initial relationship, they rekindled their contact and had a brief sexual relationship, which led to her becoming pregnant. Rosie is always very open in saying that she had never planned to have a child, as she had the same fear that she would pass and leave her child with the same fear of loss that she had when her mother passed. During this time, Greg's abuse began again. When they rekindled their contact and increased after he found out that she had fallen pregnant. This is something that is quite common with relationships. They start off small, small little bits of abuse, which you can sort of pass off as something else. And then it slowly increases. And it is actually quite common for in relationships for abuse to increase during a pregnancy. But there is also instances where the abuse completely stops as well. It's quite a grey area in the different type of abusers, I suppose it comes down to. Where some of them will absolutely not touch a pregnant woman and others will be hell-bent on going a bit harder. Their son Luke was born on the 20th of June 2000. Despite all the abuse Rosie had endured, she expressed that Greg was a loving father to Luke and that she did think that he had a right to have contact with his son. I just want to give a little bit of background into who Greg, or for his full name, Greg Anderson, is. Greg at the time of the incident was 54 years old. He had all his life struggled to maintain a job and a place to live. He was often described by those who knew him as unstable, manipulative and aggressive. It is suggested that he may have had an undiagnosed mental illness as he claimed to hear voices that made him do the aggressive behaviour, but this had never been confirmed or diagnosed and it's not something that I really entirely believe. For a lot of aggressive abusers and also some serial killers that a lot of people will actually see and read about, when it comes to their court cases or when they're being caught, they often claim that they are hearing voices. It's one of the most common claims. 
usually a person who is hearing voices won't admit it because they think it's something real. They think that they're talking to someone who is actually there in their head living. So they won't say it's a voice. They'll give the person a name. Just something to bear in mind there. However, I will state that's not always the case, but it's something that I do believe in this case. In June 2004 was the first time that the police were involved in the domestic violence situation and Greg became known to the police. Rosie had feared for years that he would kill her. When he flew into a rage, she knew she had to act. A lot of the quotes that I'm going to be reading are actually taken directly from the um, coroner's inquest. He threw me against a wall, held me there by the scruff of my neck, then threw me to the ground, Rosie recalled. He threatened to knock me into next week all in front of Luke, who was then just three. This was the first time I had involved the police and this was a big step, she said. But he wasn't charged and she wasn't asked whether she needed an intervention order. There were seemingly no consequences for Greg. Two months later, Rosie wrote her will, petrified that he would make good on the threats that if she ever stopped him from seeing Luke, that he would kill her. Confident, though, that he would never hurt Luke, she didn't plan to do that. But she wanted to put in place proper and fair arrangements for Luke's care in the event of something happening to her. She's quoted saying, I wanted to make it clear Greg would not be the right person to have custody of Luke. Just taking into consideration this first time that the police came into the domestic violence situation. Rosie's abuse had actually been going on for nearly five years before they first stepped in. It is well known that it will take an abuse victim on average about 12 to 13 times to leave a relationship before they will actually get up the courage to actually leave or actually take action like phoning the police. It is a very big step for a domestic violence victim to do. Because if, like in this situation, nothing has done, the consequences can be catastrophic for them. After the first calling out of the police in 2004, Rosie entered a five-year relationship with a long-term partner 
Greg actually backed off during this time. But when this relationship ended, he again stepped up his abuse. This is yet again very common in relationships when another alpha male or alpha person enters a, a dynamic the abuser will actually back off or they'll try and make themselves seem friendly, seem less of a threat than what the victim is actually saying. So when the victim's new partner or support person leaves or the relationship ends, the abuse does ramp up because they have had all that pent up anger and pent up frustration from all those years. And it seems to just come exploding out. Police were called in the May of 2012 when Greg again attacked Rosie. And this time it was Luke who grabbed a phone so Rosie could call triple zero, which is Australia's version of 911 or 999. Luke later said that he wished he was bigger so that he could protect her and that he was scared when the police did not come immediately. Rosie and Luke then went to court the next day and child protection authorities first became involved. This is very similar to my own situation. I can feel the tension and the emotions when I read Rosie and Luke's words. They fear someone who should be showing them love is attacking them. And when they are asking for help from the police, they are not giving anything but a, it'll be okay, attitude. There is no offer of protection or any solutions. Even Luke saying that he wished that he was bigger so he could protect his mother. It strikes so hard that a 12 year old can see the bigger picture and wants to protect his mother from his father. I just think that is such a powerful statement. But these events become more of the same. And I'm sure the outcomes will infuriate most of you, as they certainly infuriate me. In November 2012, Greg was caught accessing child pornography at a public computer in a Melbourne library. He was yet again not reprimanded for this, just another police interview and released. This should have been brought up with child protection. Considering he had a son and a past in domestic violence, 
and the fact that only this year child protection authorities were becoming involved in his domestic relationship. But it wasn't. When Greg again threatened to kill Rosie in January 2013, she didn't hesitate in going to the local police. And she told them she expected him back the next morning. The police officer told me that he couldn't promise to be there, but I should ring triple zero. When Greg arrived the next morning, she did call the police. And by the time the police had arrived, he'd already left. Police told Rosie that they would have to leave. I insisted that they stay and became very frightened. One of the police officers became indignant and accused me of trying to tell them what to do or how to do their job. The officers did stay and Greg was arrested and charged. Later, the police apologised to Rosie, saying even they'd found the hulking six-footer really frightening. But Greg was bailed. The police said to Rosie that they had tried to tell the court how dangerous he was and to have him reprimanded. I came across quite a few police officers who didn't seem to understand the situation that I was in. None of them could really understand that being in a country all by yourself with no family around you was frightening or that having someone else's family gang up on you is definitely something that does and can happen. And a lot of them did brush me off. Like they brushed Rosie off. A week after this incident, Rosie went back to court. But Greg hadn't been served with any of the documents and didn't appear. And the case was put off for months. In the April of 2013, Rosie was called to give evidence against him on a threat to kill her and the other charges. However, yet again, Greg never appeared. Around about this time, Luke had said that Greg had showed him a knife, saying that it could all end with this. Rosie and Luke's relationship was a really good one. They had a very open relationship and Luke told his mum everything. He told Rosie about his dad showing him the knife and the words that he had said along with it. And Rosie is stated saying, from that moment, my trust was gone. I couldn't let Luke be alone with Greg by himself again. For a while, a court-imposed ban worked and Greg found himself in jail. 
but he was repeatedly released by the courts despite police opposition. It was at this time that Rosie found out about the child pornography being accessed in 2012. And she was shocked that she had not been informed despite of them having a child together who was currently in the child protection system against Greg. In that April during this time, Magistrate Anne Goldsborough called for immediate action, saying that all of the risk indicators are here. That afternoon after that court case, where Greg didn't turn up, he turned up at Luke's football practice to watch Luke play football and to taunt Rosie. Police had urged her to tell them when she next saw Greg so that they could come and arrest him. But when she did phone them during that football practice, they hadn't received the warrants. And instead, she had to sit and watch Greg watch Luke play football at footy training. As you can see, there is a lot of failures in the system. The police and the courts don't tend to talk to each other very well and the communication between them isn't very streamlined. And the laws around this aren't very black and white. There's a lot of gray areas and they don't seem to want to rock the boat too much. In May, 2013, Greg continued to breach court orders, visiting Luke at school. Weeks later, he was arrested at the footy training. And a week later, he was arrested again and reprimanded for two weeks. But again and again, he was freed and allowed limited contact with Luke. Rosie was then quoted saying, at no time did I get the impression that anyone would hold Greg to account. I felt all the onus remained on me to protect Luke. This makes me feel so upset. And it really hits me emotionally because this is how exactly I felt and I still feel. That no one will hold anyone to account and that in the end it is up to you to protect yourself and to protect your children if you're in this situation. It can be quite disheartening. Yet again, Rosie was back in court in the September of 2013. Greg again didn't turn up and the magistrate was refusing to hear the case. But Rosie argued and said that he had not turned up even though he had been served with documents and that she should have her case heard because she had waited long enough. 
through her stubbornness and her willingness to try and protect her son, she won her case. Rosie said that Luke had realised he didn't need his dad's troubles in his life. He did not look forward to seeing him at cricket training or football training and was embarrassed by Greg. In January 2014, Greg threatened to kill one of his flatmates, leading to the flatmates seeking an intervention order. And Greg was arrested, but released shortly after, again. Um, because of privacy laws, Rosie was not immediately made aware of these events. A week before the final incident, in February 2014, Rosie gave police Greg's address, but they didn't act. Detective Andrew Cocking said that the matter wasn't urgent. On the 12th of February 2014, Greg murdered 11-year-old Luke at cricket practice on a sports over in the outer Melbourne suburb of Tab. Although parents and children were present, as people began to leave and were some distance away, Greg managed to isolate Luke inside the cricket net, where he struck his son on the head and stabbed him to death. Greg resisted arrest and threatened ambulance workers with a knife. He later died in hospital from police gunshots and self-inflicted stab wounds. In the coronial inquest, police officers, child protection services and Rosie stated that they never believed that Greg would harm Luke. As although he had a history of violence against Rosie, he was not violent towards his son. However, in hindsight, you can all see the red flags that Greg used Luke all the time to get to Rosie. Greg used Luke as a pawn to harm his mother by using the time that he was supposed to be watching Luke and sports events to taunt Rosie. And the ultimate harm to Rosie would be get rid of her son. Rosie is someone I think we all need to look up to. Just after Luke's death, Rosie established the Luke Batty Foundation to assist women and children affected by domestic violence. Rosie began speaking publicly about her experience after addressing the media the morning after Luke's murder. She became an advocate for domestic violence survivors and victims and sought to address the perceived systematic failures in responses to domestic violence in Australia. She has spoken about the lack of communication between services, about public perceptions of domestic violence, about the lack of funding, and about police and legal procedures that she felt disempowered her ability to protect herself and her son. Rosie's story was instrumental in the establishment in 2015 of the Royal Commission into Family Violence in her home state of Victoria. 
It was tabled in Parliament on the 30th of March 2016. The report is a combination of a 13-month inquiry into how to effectively prevent family violence, improve early intervention, support victims, make perpetrators accountable, better coordinate community and government response, and evaluate the measures and strategies, frameworks, policies, programs, and services. The report includes eight volumes and is founded on 227 recommendations made by the Commission to improve, guide, and oversee a long-term reform program that deals with family violence. This included the establishment of the Family Violence Protection Act, which provides a detailed definition of family violence, the relationships in which it can arise, and the reinforcement of the sound objectives and the principles of the Act. Unfortunately, I still think there is a long way to go. This act was only instated in Victoria, which is one of the states that make up Australia. Victoria is a very progressive state, and I do believe that them taking on board and actually doing something almost immediately after this case with Rosie spearheading this proves how much that they do want to change. Unfortunately, a lot of the other states, including the one that I currently reside in, are not taking this as progressively as the state of Victoria. I still think there is a lot of work to do in the education of police, authorities, places that can support victims, even some of the courts, to ensure that perpetrators are not just always being released and able to go back to all the things that they've been doing before. In 2015, Rosie was appointed to Australian of the Year. This is because through her courage, she had been so driven to help people in the same situation as herself and Lou. However, in 2018, Rosie chose to step down from the Luke Batty Foundation and it has in fact closed. She has wished to take some time out of the public eye and have some time to herself and for some reflection. I think for Rosie, throwing herself into trying the Luke Batty Foundation and trying to help other victims in that were in her situation was a way of dealing with her grief at the time. For uh, I feel I can see the grief that she will feel from the loss of her mother at six years old and then losing her son is going to really affect her and how she can form relationships in the future and how she'll feel about the relationship with herself. Unfortunately, it is going to take her a long time to find her new normal because she's never going to feel normal again. 
A child should never die before a parent. Rosie had shown so much courage over the years she was subjected to domestic violence at the hands of Greer Anderson. And I also believe that she is still a victim under his control because he took away something that was so incredibly precious to her. As I said before, unfortunately, systems are still not up to where they need to be in regard to the police and the court response to domestic violence cases. I am definitely a firm believer in the more education that we can expose ourselves to and increasing our knowledge on domestic violence and the different types that can be subjected to any individual can only help for the future. My main aim for these three episodes over the past few weeks has to be inform everyone of the different types of domestic violence. And also it can happen to anyone and at any time in our lives. We saw by the first case of Christopher Donnelly, how he was a 50 year old man in a supposed loving family, family unit and that he was subjected to so much violence. And we saw in the last episode of Sophia Leonette how she was subjected to domestic violence, even though she wasn't a direct member of the family. She was no pair, but she was included in that family unit and how the domestic violence was perpetrated onto her and how because of her isolation, it was used and abused. And then this case today of Rosie, how the abuse was always directed at her, so she didn't ever think that it would eventually go to Luke. But ultimately, Greg killed Luke to hurt Rosie the most, as he knew that would be the one thing that would hurt her. Being someone who has lived through domestic violence, and I will admit, I still go through little periods of it. It makes you realize that it can happen to anyone. I certainly am small in stature, but I have a very strong personality. And I had always been someone who could stand on my own two feet. I was in denial for so long that I was a victim of domestic violence and it was happening to me. And I felt like I was an imposter for feeling like I was a victim of domestic violence. But when you read in the literature, this is actually one of the first signs that you are actually a victim. When you're denying it, that you're giving excuses for the perpetrator or abuser. This is something I already knew as well from studying around psychology, around forensics, around into criminology, but I still couldn't attribute it to myself. I can see it in others, but it was very hard for me to look at myself and admit what I was going through. 
So from the information that I have given to you in this series, please look after yourselves and those around you. Always be aware of what is going on and take notes of situations. You could be that support that could help someone. Just like I had someone who did that for me. Because it may have taken me multiple, multiple times. But finally, when I took that first step, I needed that support person there for me. And I needed that. And someone else could need that too. And please, if you have been affected by any of the topics that I've covered over the past three weeks or want more information, I will leave relevant links in the show notes below, which I have done on all three episodes. My sources this week were Wikipedia, um, an article in the Herald Sun called Rosie Batty Reveals Her Battle to Stop Killer Dad Greg Anderson Violence Before Son Luke's Death. The Witness Statement of Rosie Batty and the Royal Commission into Family Violence. And an article at ABC News, Tab Boy Dead, Father Shot by Police. I'm hopefully going to try and get out, um, uh, I'm going to say Christmas themed episode, but it's not really Christmas themed, but it's going to be a bit of a spooky, lighthearted version to get us through what's been the last six weeks. But we're school holidays now in full swing here in Australia. I will see how I go since I have a nice five-year-old hanging around me most of the time. Trying to find activities for him has definitely become my full-time job at the moment. But I'm definitely looking to get that out next week. So there'll be episodes next week as well for you. Thank you for listening to another episode of Macabre for Mortals. If you like this podcast, please subscribe for more content. And please, if you have any time, please could you just rate my podcast as well. Um, I've heard it helps other people find it. Please join our Facebook group, Macabre for Mortals podcast. Um, As I mentioned, I have started an Instagram page with some of the photos of the people and places involved in the cases to give you a visual impact. And this page can be found under Macabre for Mortals. Or if you have any stories or any cases you would like me to cover, then please email them to macabreformortals at gmail.com. I hope you are starting to feel a bit more in the Christmassy mood. Um, it's definitely heating up here and the weather has been a bit wild, windy and rainy here the past few days. So in Australia, that's as about as Christmassy as it can feel before our 30, 40 degree weather ramps up. But I hope you all have a lovely week and thank you for listening again. Bye.